Last month, Transport for London refused to give Uber, the so-called ride-sharing app, a new licence in London. The capital's mayor and the transport regulator said the firm does not provide the high standards required of taxi drivers. Uber is appealing the decision, meaning customers can keep using the platform until the results of that appeal. Yeah, I think it's clear by trying to ban Uber in London, the mayor and TfL have caved to a small minority of individuals and groups that want to restrict competition and choice in the capital. But this isn't the first time Uber's got itself into trouble. The safety of their service has been continually questioned. Their CEO had to resign because of a series of scandals, and they lost a landmark employment tribunal last year that ruled their drivers had to be classed as workers rather than self-employed. You know, and specifically in London, with regards to TfL's decision on Friday, uh, you know, we absolutely want to sit down with them to understand their concerns much better. Today on the Weekly Economics Podcast, we're asking the question, if Uber is banned, what should replace it? My name's Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay with us. Chatting to me about Uber and platforms today, we welcome back to the podcast the New Economics Foundation's Principal Director for Unions and Business, Stefan Baskerville of Stefan Stark Futures fame. Hello again, Stefan. Hello, Aisha. Welcome back. It's good to be here. I know you asked me not to raise that. I apologise unreservedly. Uh, and we're also joined by Nef's, Nef researcher Duncan McCann. How's it going, Dunk? Brilliant. Okay, so before we dive into the topic of Uber and platforms, we'll do our usual headline segment and look back at some of the stories in the news recently that have caught your eye. In a bit I like to call, I've run out of songs, so headlines that caught your eye. Duncan, what's the headline of the week? Uh, Well, the one that really caught my eye was um, the AlphaGo Zero, um, which uh, DeepMind programmed to learn how to play the game Go. Now, some of you are thinking, well, that was a story from a couple of years ago. Or some of us will be thinking, what's Go? What's Go? (laughs) So Go is an ancient Chinese game that we've been playing for about 3,000 years. And a bit like chess, it's from very simple rules, you can get a huge complexity of gameplay. Mm. Um, And so some people remember that a couple of years ago, Google DeepMind taught a computer how to beat a professional Go player, which was seen as a real landmark in artificial intelligence's achievement. What's happened this time with AlphaGo Zero is that a machine has learned how to play Go without any help from people. So the way most machine learning happens is the machine is taught everything that humans know, but just does it very, very quickly. This machine learned from scratch and not only was able to then beat the previous computer and all of the professionals, but found completely new ways of playing Go, which we had never thought of in the 3,000 years that we played Go. Wow. So it's both amazing if you're a Go aficionado, mm. but what's more amazing is that this, uh, it, this is the first step on what's called general purpose AI, where we can teach computers, teach systems to do anything. Or um, they can learn for themselves. Without and they can learn for themselves. And they can learn more than us. So they can learn oh. things that we can't understand. So Should we be afraid? I'm quite afraid. Should, should I be afraid? Um, I oscillate between the two, between amazement and a bit of afraidness. And so I think that's probably... We have most, to just wait and most see. days, though. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right, Stefan, um, what's, what's on your radar? 
UK inflation reached a five-year high this week at 3%. So the consumer price index hit 3%, uh, which is the highest it's been since 2012. Mm. Um, and the reason this really matters is that, um, you know, real wages and people's pay has now been stagnant uh, for a very, very long time. In fact, um, pay is no higher today than it was uh, in February 2006. Um, mm. And so people are really feeling this in their pockets. Um, it's partly a consequence of Brexit. Um, you know, we've seen a real fall in the value of the pound since the Brexit vote. Uh, and that's meant that the imported goods we bring into the country have become more expensive. And that's one of the things that is driving uh, inflation. But uh, that sustained inflation re- rate will probably lead to the governor of the Bank of England recommending a um, interest rate uh, rise uh, soon. Mm. Uh, or well, that's li- one likely outcome, as well as uh, him having to write a letter to the uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer explaining why uh, he's so far out of the 2% target that the, um, that the government gives to the bank. Thanks, Duncan and Stefan. That was a, a top start. So now it's time to talk Uber. I love you, scary driver, with a duct tape on your fender. Pour me into the car and absorb me in your splendor. Since Transport for London announced that it wasn't giving Uber a new licence, over 850,000 people have signed an online petition organised by the company calling for the ban to be overturned. As well as having millions of customers, Uber employs over 40,000 drivers in London alone, as well as expanding its service across the UK. So Uber might be controversial, but it's popular too. If Uber's banned in London, there's no doubt people will be looking for alternatives. But are they already out there, or could they be created? And what does the story of Uber tell us about the broader platform economy? So a simple question to start off with. For listeners who haven't yet used the app, what's Uber? And why is Transport for London trying to take its license away? So Uber is a transport services company which provides um, private hire minicabs through a digital platform app that you download and you have on your phone. Uh, It was founded in 2009. Um, It spread particularly rapidly from around 2012 onwards um, and now reaches far and wide uh, all over the globe. It's raised enormous amounts of uh, venture capital money over the years, lots of which it's losing in order to subsidise its kind of entry into new markets. Um, it's very popular amongst people. Its uh, use is widespread because it's seen as uh, being convenient. You can get a cab quickly, uh, mm. and it's seen as being reasonably priced. You know, much much cheaper than a, a black cab in London. Um, but it is also controversial. Uh, you know, there've been big questions around the kind of internal culture of the firm, uh, around the behaviour of uh, its former chief executive Travis Kalanick. Um, around the way that it treats its drivers, um, but also its attitude towards regulators. Um, And I guess that brings us to TfL, which is the regulator of the private hire um, part of the London economy. Um, and, you know, a, cu- a couple of weeks ago, they, re- they uh, refused uh, to renew the Uber's license to operate. Uh, the reason they gave, they concluded that uh, Uber was not a fit, fit and proper uh, company to hold the license. Mm. Uh, and the basis on which they made that decision was around its approach and its conduct um, indicating a lack of corporate responsibility, particularly around concerns over public safety. Um, so they, they raised a kind of number of different concerns, but two of the ones that I think it's worth lifting up are the, uh, Uber's approach to reporting serious criminal offences, which included public order offences and sexual assaults, uh, but also its use of something called Grayball, which is a, a piece of software that allows Uber to um, prevent uh, 
enforcement of regulations by officials by pr- basically presenting a different version of the app to regulators if they if they tried to hail cabs. Oh, clever. Um, so um, so yeah. So the, the the primarily safety grounds, but there is this kind of background of other issues uh, surrounding the firm. So if Uber dealt with its safety issues, then would everything would the problem be solved? Do you think they get the license back? Well, as I said, I think there's this broader set of questions around the firm, and you know, whilst the um, the kind of list of issues um, outlined by Transport for London did only relate to safety, one does wonder whether there are other things going on in the background uh, around you know the treatment of drivers. There is this outstanding legal process. Uh, we're waiting for a judgment from the Employment Appeals Tribunal. In October of last year, Uber lost a case. Uh, an employment judge ruled that, in fact, its uh, drivers were workers and uh, therefore should be afforded certain employment rights. Um, mm-hmm. Uber appealed that judgment. The hearing was in uh, September. and We're now waiting for the legal judgment to be handed down. So there's that kind of unresolved issue. Um, in the background. And there's also other questions about the firm, including the amount of tax that it pays in the UK. Um, and as I say, its attitude towards the regulators and whether or not uh, it's, it kind of complies with uh, with the um, demands that they place on it. And so, you know, I, my sense is that what it might it might go some way towards addressing the safety concerns, but there are other questions over the appropriateness of the firm and, and its mm. behaviour. And it's probably going to have to uh, demonstrate improvement on those fronts too if it wants to curry favour with the authorities in London. So when we've talked about techie stuff before or th- these kind of topics, uh, the, the term Luddite gets thrown around a lot. We've had a, a lot of Luddite bants. So is this a bit Luddite, basically? is Uber's a huge company. It runs in big city across the world. It's new. It's techie. Is it is it a bit off-key for a big city like London to ban it outright? Well, I think, you know, uh, there are plenty of cities, even whole countries where Uber just doesn't operate. I mean, it would be slightly unusual for them to be banned. In general, what happens with the likes of Uber and Lyft is they take umbrage at a particular uh, regulation and then uh, decide to quit the city. And so we've seen that in a number of Mm -hmm. places. So um, some notable ones are like Seoul in South Korea, uh, one of the most high tech Uh, technologically sophisticated cities uh, in the world uh, where Uber refused to comply with the regulations. What happens? A locally owned alternative arose, which now has 80% market share. Uh, You've had that happen in other places as well. Uh, Austin, Texas is another interesting example where uh, the regulators required uh, all private hire operators to fingerprint their drivers Mm. and validate it. Uh, Uber and Lyft refused to do so, uh, left the city from literally from one day to the next. Within five weeks, an ecosystem, again, of locally owned alternatives came up. So the service was still there. The price remained relatively similar, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, the, the conditions kind of got better for both the driver, for, for mainly for the drivers, and the regulations were complied with. So there's a, there's a whole history of cities not going over and above to, you know, pull Uber over the coals, but just forcing Uber to comply with the same regulations that everybody else does. And so that's a little bit what uh, London's trying to do. And I'll, you know, and I also want to offer a bit of a defence for the Luddites, who <laughs> an often maligned uh, group of people from 200 years ago, interestingly, who just started their protest just at this time, uh, probably just 205 or 210 years ago or so, And they were really not protesting against technology per se. The Mm. industry that they were in, weaving, as well as a host of other industries, had been integrating kind of new technology into it for hundreds of years. 
what they were really against was the way that this specific technology was being applied and that it was really undermining their wages, mm. dismantling a kind of a whole worker rights ecosystem that had developed, uh, as well as then pursuing a kind of real unregulated free market. And so when you understand the Luddites as pursuing proper wages with rights and a regulated market, I'm quite like happy to call this Luddite because we should be actually fighting for uh, all of those things. So if Uber loses its appeal uh, and it is banned in London, should we all get ready to get on the bus a bit more? Well, I think the first thing to say is it's probably pretty unlikely that Uber will lose its licence. And the mm. reason I say that is because the market in London is so important to them that they're likely to be willing to make the compromises demanded of them by Transport for London. You know, they're profitable in London and in the UK, which is not true of some of their other biggest markets like the United States and India. And so they're going to fight pretty hard to keep London, I think. But if they are banned and they're, and they're no longer able to function, uh, you know, Londoners are, are welcome to use the bus more. My suspect mm. is they won't have to. Those Londoners that are using Uber today would find fairly quickly that a lot of other options arose. We know that some of the other big players in this world, like Lyft uh, and Taxify, are either um, already applying for licenses or in active conversations with um, people in London or uh, receiving large investments from uh, sources of finance in order to move into this market. So I, I guess the first thing is other alternatives are going to rise in its place. And we think the question is, who owns those alternatives, who controls them and who benefits uh, from them? And that's where the room for a, a kind of mutually owned, a driver owned option uh, mm. and a, a driver owned alternative uh, comes in. You could see how the Mayor of London and Transport for London could support it in various ways. And since coming out in favour of the idea of a driver owned alternative, we've had a whole host of different organisations get in touch with us from tech mm. firms to fundraising uh, professionals um, to uh, drivers who are interested in constructing that alternative. And so now the prospect of a partnership is in front of us to try and piece that, piece that together. That'd be exciting. I think so. Yeah. If we could get that off the ground, that would be uh, it would be quite a thing. Yeah. So just to, just to clarify, what are the specific demands that are being asked of Uber that you said that they might concede to? Well, or some of them. Well, we're not privy to those. I mean, oh, we know okay. that we know mm. that we know the ground we know the grounds on which the license was refused. Yeah. Um, we also know that the chief executive or the current chief executive of Uber uh, departed from San Francisco in the midst of a huge power battle at the top of the company around who was getting to sit on the board and all kinds of things uh, to come to London and uh, engage uh, in a conversation in London. So it's clear that London's important to them. It's also apparent that they they will they will fight. Uh, to, to try and keep it. But what precisely gets discussed between uh, mm. Uber executives and Transport for London currently remains behind closed doors. Oh, like the Brexit negotiations. Yeah. All right, so let's talk about prices. So when Uber first came on the scene, it undercut lots of other taxi services by a huge margin. Everyone was like, it's so cheap, it's great. So some analysts reckon that it did this by using money from uh, Silicon Valley venture capitalists so that it could drive other companies out of business and build a monopoly um, and that it could eventually hike the prices back up. Um, so is it possible for other people without huge amounts of venture capital to compete with Uber? Yeah, well, there's a couple of sides to this story. So it is definitely true that in some markets, they use the huge amounts of money that they have been given by venture capitalists in order to subsidize the rides. Mm. 
Uh, in some places, that's been successful. And in some places, it hasn't. So China, for instance, they pumped hundreds of millions of dollars of their VC money into subsidizing the rides. But they were against an even better capitalized Chinese alternative who ended up winning that battle. But it, obviously, in many places, they have ended up uh, coming out on top. But in London, the story is a bit different because London, Uber is actually profitable in its own right. So it's not subsidizing our rides here in London. So the reason why rides are still relatively cheap compared to normal minicab um, providers in London is uh, on a number of different fronts. So first of all, it's the fundamentally different way in which Uber operates in a traditional minicab. Mm. So if you can think of a traditional minicab uh, office as a kind of the hub of a wheel, and the, and the minicab goes out and does a journey, it goes out the spoke, it drops the person off, but then it has to come back to its original depot mm -hmm. to wait, wait for its next job. So the traditional minicab model has the car empty for at least 50% of the time because it's doing always one way of the journey and then the wait. Mm. So what Uber, the transformational bit of Uber, more so than anything else, is that it allowed minicabs to never have to do that kind of hub and spoke kind of journey. So once you've gone from Hackney to Edmonton and you've dropped off, you don't need to go all the way back to Hackney. You just wait around Edmonton for your next job. Yeah. So the, you know, the utilization of the cars is much, much better, which allows them then to reduce the cost. So that's one thing that they kind of radically changed. The other thing that they did was initiate surge pricing. Yeah. So that allows them to the, the kind of the headline rates are low in normal times. But then when actually demand is high and everybody wants to use it, uh, you can have your fare hiked uh, hugely uh, and, again, under no control of your own. Um, and then there's a few other ones. So the fact that they don't give workers their full rights also, again, allows them to save cost. And also their regulatory avoidance, again, also allows them to save cost. But I'd say the two major ones are their VC money and the way that they've solved this, this hub and spoke kind of model of, uh, of a minicab. So, so in London, we think that a mutually owned alternative could compete against Uber today. Mm. Uh, so what Uber do is they take between 20 and 30% of a driver's fare as a commission. So we think there's huge scope to reduce that because we're not looking, a, a mutually owned alternative wouldn't be looking to make profits to return to investors. Uh, we've been looking to provide a good service and we could use that extra percentage that we don't take off the drivers to either reward the drivers properly, mm. uh, to comply with regulations uh, and things like that. So under normal circumstances, we, you know, a, an alternative would be able to match Uber on price. The risk is, the danger is, is that Uber sees a driver-owned alternative starting up in London as an existential threat to its business model. Yeah. If London realizes that they can just do it themselves, well, next it will be Paris, and then it will be, you know, and it'll be a kind of domino effect. And so will they then start to re-subsidize those rides? So yeah. that um, so that would certainly be very, very challenging. Now, again, there's 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 a kind of two-sided story from Austin, Texas. So in Austin, Texas, they Uber and Lyft did leave. Uh, but a year after leaving, they decided to come back into the market. Mm. And so there they were, Lyft and Uber coming back in. But there were these 14 lovely local little uh, alternatives that had emerged in the year that they'd been gone. But they have since both kind of flooded the market with promotions, deals, and so on. So that, in fact, it's decimated those 14. 
But the biggest of them still retains about 10 to 15% of the market share. So even though Lyft and Uber are crashing their prices, there are still 10 to 15% of people who want to use a minicab, use a taxi, who are willing to make ethical choices. And so if we could capture 10 to 15% of the London market, so mm. Uber has three and a half million customers here in London. Mm. So 10% is, you know, already 350,000 customers. We believe you could make a viable alternative just focusing on maybe that 10% that is willing to make ethical choices. Mm. But, um, but yeah, it, it definitely remains a challenge. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point because often a lot of people when they talk about um, public opinion around Uber, you know, all these people sign the petition, people kind of just say people only care about prices at the end of the day. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's really important to to have a bit more of a hopeful view of we don't need everyone, just mm. some people and it'd be viable. That's nice. And also Uber can't lose money forever. You know, yes, they've mm. raised about 11, somewhere between 12 and 15 billion in venture capital money, but they lost 2.8 billion last year. So... You know, even my basic math says that that can only go on for you know six more years, and it's 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 over for them if they, you know if they've got all the money. So, um, so there definitely is a limit to the amount that Uber can subsidise. All right. So, final question: Is this all just about Uber, or should we also be having this conversation about other companies? Yeah, no, it's definitely not just about Uber. It's not about Uber itself. It's not even just about rideshare companies. Uh, it's about rethinking uh, platforms in general. So how do you define a platform? So a platform a is just a place, and it can be physical or virtual, that allows two distinct groups of people to connect. So mm. in the Middle Ages, we had our local markets, and they were <laughs> our platforms of the Middle Ages because they had people who had things to sell, and they were brought together with people who wanted to buy. And the, the local market kind of created that mass. Now, in the modern world, everything has become a platform. When you want to order food, you do it over a platform. If you want to do transport, you do it over a platform. If you want like a micro task, you can go to TaskRabbit. So much of the way that we procure services now has been, is now mediated through a platform. How would you pr procure services without a platform? Well, again, and again, the problem isn't necessarily the platform, but the problem is the, the, the kind of the nature of the kind of platforms that have emerged. So mm. some of them are really great. So one of the earliest platforms of the kind of the digital world was OpenTable. Oh, yeah. So OpenTable solved a huge problem, which was that if you can think back in the 90s, <laughs> you had to, if you wanted to book a restaurant... You had to physically pick up the phone and ring round and check if there was any tables and if there wasn't, you know, the next one. And so the open table. Exactly. That's terrible. Uh, the, the, the story is the wife of the founder of Open Table one evening spent four hours trying to book them a restaurant and was unsuccessful. And that was his inspiration. That was his inspiration for starting Open Table. <laughs> and so there, uh, it's free to use as a consumer. And in fact, you get rewarded for using it. Mm. Um, and it's also, uh, there's a, there's, there's, it's almost free to use for the, for the restaurants as well. So there are platforms which are non-exploitative and provide a good service and both sides of the platform uh, like it. What's kind of more recently emerged is a more kind of predatory platform whereby the workers' rights are kind of trodden on, the profit, all of the value is being extracted by the owner instead of by the people who really create the value, which is the people on both sides of the platform. And that's, I think, what makes things radically different is that the value isn't created necessarily by the company who owns the technology, but it's created by us using it. So it, Uber would be useless without its 
drivers and it equally be useless without its users. It's only them both coming together in the right volumes mm. uh, that, th that generate the value. And this leads to a kind of different thinking about how these platforms should be owned and, it, and these platforms that mediate services. So Deliveroo, Uber, TaskRabbit, uh, there's a strong uh, economic rationale for those becoming more worker-owned platforms. I even believe that I think users should be involved because ultimately it's both sides of the platform that create the value. And so both sides should have a stake in owning it uh, and saying how it's governed. The, the other thing to think about is the kind of monopoly status that these um, firms are, are, are achieving. And they've, they've got a share structure, which uh, means uh, that power resides in the hands of the founders. And so they're actually impermeable to the kind of traditional um, strategies that you might use to in influence corporates, for example, through investors. So, you know, if you can get a large number of pension funds on your side in relation to a particular issue with a traditional corporate, you can have some sway over the board because you can get the pension funds to start leaning on, on the board because they're major investors in the firm and they own a lot of shares. But often these companies are structured with two classes of shares, which puts all of the power in the hands of a very small number of people. And it means they're not susceptible to kind of investor leverage because they're monopolies or duopolies. They're really not susceptible to consumer exit. So we can't really withdraw um, from using Google, for example. It basically mm -hmm. dominates the search. You could go to Bing or there's, a, there's one called DuckDuckGo, which protects your <laughs> privacy, but like who's heard of them? And anyway, well, all our listeners now, you, all twelve. You, well, of them. there you go. But, but you see, <laughs> but because everybody relies on them, then uh, you kind of and that you don't really have anywhere else to go. There is no alternative to Facebook that would bring you value in the same way that uh, Facebook brings you value. Then you don't have consumer exit as a as an option for leverage. And so um, and so that that means that there's a kind of there's not only a concentration of power, but it's also a, it's unaccountable. Um, and so it's a concentration of unaccountable power. And that's going to be a problem over time. We're already seeing the impact of it now. But I think in the future, we're going to need to engage with the workers of those firms because actually organising them and working with them on what their concerns are about the way that they function will be one, one way in which we could uh, achieve some influence over them. And I think that will be um, an interesting area for us to engage in as time goes on. Mm. Yeah, and Stefan raised some interesting points there about the whole idea of them becoming monopolies and... Um, the idea of network effects. Mm -hmm. So these platforms, because of a network effect, which means that the more people in the network on both sides of the platform, the more useful it becomes. So part of why Google is so great is because everybody uses it. And so it's a kind of self-reinforcing uh, cycle. And some of the traditional weapons that regulators and the state has had against monopolies, which is to break them up, which is what we saw in the, you know, the uh, 18th and some of the 19th century, uh, just wouldn't work on these platforms. And that's why we, we also need to think about different strategies about how to deal with monopolies. And that's why I think it, ownership is much more on the cards in terms of what we should do with platforms versus traditional monopolies. We talk about fining them or breaking them up, but those really haven't been effective strategies against these platforms. But there are some effective strategies and we've talked about some of them. Yes. Sounds good. I'm excited. <laughs> I'm so much happier than I usually am when we finish. This is great. All right, so I'm going to take us home. Our final segment, we're going to be talking about uh, your favourite alternative platform. So uh, we've talked about alternative models for apps and stuff like that. There are some already out there. What are your favourites? What should we be looking out for? We're going to start with you, Stefan. So uh, I wanted to lift up a, an app called Yamove. 
You move. Uh, yeah. Well, I'm pleased you said it because it should be said in a Yorkshire accent. <laughs> you move. Yeah. Because Lovely. it's because uh, it's the work of some uh, taxi drivers in the Leeds and Bradford region, oh, and uh, they've um, worked together to develop their own uh, taxi app. Um, mm. uh, so they've got their own piece of technology. They've got their own app, and they're setting up uh, a work, you know, worker own taxi firm in the north of England, and uh, we've been working with them a little bit. And uh, so it was, I thought it would be good to give them some profile. That's lovely. Yeah. Uh, Duncan, what have you got? Uh, one that I'm enjoying at the moment is called Resonate. Okay. So Resonate is a platform cooperative version of Spotify or Apple Music. Oh. Um, and what's great about it is that me as a listener, as well as the artists and the labels, we're all members of this co-op. Mm. So we share in the potential future proceeds of it. Oh. Um, but they also switch around a bit the way that artists get rewarded. So, you know, there's a is an ongoing kind of theme that artists are poorly rewarded by these streaming mm. platforms. And so Resonate has a really clever model whereby when you're browsing the whole history and just listening to something once, it's really, really cheap to listen to once. But if you listen to something a lot and you, you like it, after eight listens, you actually physically own the track. So you've paid them enough to... Uh, merit you owning the track and so yeah. it's a way of combining kind of what's great about streaming because you can discover all of this music at your fingertips but maybe it's for slightly older people who still think they need to own their music and I have mm. some kind of vague attachment to that um, and then we get to all share in the proceeds of the platform uh, growing so it's a really interesting little uh, example. Yeah they're both, sound, they're both so lovely. Alright, so thank you again Duncan and Stefan for joining me on the pod and thank you lovely listener for coming back time and time again for all the terrible jokes. If you have enjoyed this episode please do think about leaving us a rating or a review in the Apple Podcast app. It only takes a minute and it really helps bump us up the charts which helps other people discover the show. The Weekly Economics Podcast is produced by Hugh Jordan and James Shield and brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. See you next week.